Okay, check this out about the ancient tablets. Emerald tablets. Ancient tablets uncover proof of mysterious astronaut gods. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many problems there, right, with humanity. Like, like, the, there's so much desperation on Earth in different parts yeah. of the world that breed all these, you know, all these things. Yeah. Like, like crime and corruption and death and all that stuff. But, I mean, going back to UFO conversation, I don't think I've ever heard of Robin Hansen. He talks about this idea, this, this concept, concept of grabby aliens. And talks about um, if there are, if there is another alien civilization, there's two options that it would choose. If it was, you know, say millions of years ahead of us, it would become a grabby, a grabby civilization, and it would do what us humans do: expand, control as much as we possibly can out into the universe and into multiple star systems. Or they would come to the conclusion that. If we want to let these explorers go out and colonize other stars, we have to, we'll, we'll be essentially letting go or letting go of control of them. Right. And they can do whatever they want. They could come back and take us over. Mm -hmm. we, we have no control. So they would either choose that to let them go or they would choose to control everybody or, or keep everybody on the planet and have like a one world government. And govern govern the whole entire world, and some sort and somehow have some sort of security guards, quote unquote security guards, there to make sure no one escapes yeah. the planet, or no one if the, if there are explorers that go out have fail safes in place to make sure they don't colonize or be, right. become grabby. Right. And what his idea of what these or one of his theories to what these modern day UFOs could be is it could be one of these other civilizations that are just here to make sure we don't become quote unquote grabby right. or we don't expand beyond our solar system. Mm -hmm. Something around that. I believe that that's pretty accurate. I wrote the, the, you know, I did a documentary, the black Knight satellite beyond the signal. It just aired. Uh, we had a big movie planet aired in some, some theaters actually. And now it's on my TV network, forbidden all TV. And it's our number one documentary right now. It's actually up for three film awards right now. Oh, wow. And there's this object orbiting earth. That it's estimated to be there for 13,000 years. And how do you get this number is the NSA analyzed the signal from it. Uh, a couple of astrophysicists analyzed the signal, and some ham radio operators back in the 50s also got the same signal, all independent, came up with the same translation decoding of the signal that it was saying it was from the Epsilon Boethus constellation. Now, I heard about this about 10 years ago, and I got really, really interested in the story, and I realized it was even deeper than that that the article about this came out in Time Magazine by one of the astronomers that was researching this thing and decoding the signal. And I said, Time Magazine picked this up in 1960. Then I saw some reports of it following Sputnik, when Sputnik, a Russian sent Sputnik to orbit the moon and come back. Mm. Uh, and I said, this thing was course correction. Then they discovered that it, it was in a polar orbit. It had changed course and went into a polar orbit, something we couldn't do until just recent times. We didn't even know how to get a polar orbit orbiting from pole to pole. In order to create a lot of the megalithic structures that you've seen, like the pyramid complexes and everything else, you need a polar orbit. How come we haven't been able to have a polar? Some, you're saying something orbiting the Earth, like from a up and down vertical. Yeah, from pole to pole. So this is the Earth. That Instead orbit. of going around the equator, right. it's going the other. It's going. We just got that. Maybe I think we ended up getting it official, like in the 19, late 1980s. Oh, really? Yeah. 
but this thing has been orbiting in a polar orbit from the 1950s. Everybody was looking up at the sky and uh, tracking uh, things in the sky as we were trying to go in the space race against Russia. Uh, and especially when Sputnik launched in 1960, everybody was looking up to the sky. All everybody was scanning the sky. We had some Mercury stuff going on. And the Black Knight satellite, it, uh, the object itself is interesting because it, Epsilon Boetus comes up individually several times. So I looked into Epsilon Boetus. I was like, well, let me see. Let me research this place. found out there's something called a void there. This void is called a Boetus void. It's the largest known void in the universe. It's not even dust in this area, going on for about 250 uh, million light years, some crazy spanning number like that. And so I saw uh, Michio Kaku, the famous theoretical yeah. physicist, talking yeah. about it. And he said that in that void, it looks like light's being bent around that area. And he says that we think that it's a, potentially, it could be a cloaked advanced civilization. And I was like, that's pretty interesting because the Black Knight is giving up this location. Now, you're saying it might be a cloaked advanced civilization based on, you know, theoretical physicist hypothesis. So I looked into it a little bit deeper and discovered that Boetus is owned by Enlil from the ancient Sumerian tablets. These beings own planets and moons, and some even own constellations. So I'm like, oh, no. so in these tablets, it says there's a guy named Boetus who owns... Enlil owns Boetus. Oh, Enlil owns this right. Boetus void. And Enlil was the ruler of the earth at that time. And guess what Enlil had in, his, in the tablets? He had the all-seeing eye. The Eye of Sauron, which has made it into the Lord of the Rings. He had the all-seeing eye. They copied that from the tablets. The Lord of the Rings copied it from the tablets. Oh God. So he can see... Now, listen to this. He can see population densities on the planet. He can see who had crops, who didn't have crops. He can see weather patterns all over the Earth. And you can only do that with, with a polar orbiting satellite. Because as the Earth spins on its axis, the satellite's orbiting this way. And so as the Earth is, and as, so as the satellite's orbiting this way, it's taking swaths, I'm sorry, swaths right, of data. Right. And it's scanning topography, it's scanning patterns, it's scanning everything you need, right? For barometric pressures and all that kind of stuff. You can see scanning densities, you know, you can scan for population densities. All that can come from one satellite orbiting the planet in a polar orbit. He had that. He knew what was going on. And he would, unfortunately, he was a pretty evil dude. If humans were getting too outrageous in one area, overpopulating an area, he would just have them killed. He would just, this is in the tablets, just kill them. Kill 100,000, kill 200,000. He would dry their crops out. He would spray stuff on their crops and to dry them out so they can starve to death. All this kind of crazy stuff. This guy was just ruthless. He saw us just as animals. He didn't see us as, as real sentient beings. But this guy owned Boltus. So I said, wait a minute. So I, the more I dug into it, I realized that the Black Knight satellite, which is an object that is still orbiting our planet right now, NASA, it's on NASA's server. It's called, they call it space junk. Do you know that there's a specific 2,000-year-old Korean food that you can eat to help get rid of your heartburn naturally? And did you know that acid reflux and heartburn affect nearly one-third of adults in the U.S. on a weekly basis? That's over 100 million people every single week suffering from that irritating, uncomfortable, stinging sensation after meals. Most people reach for over-the-counter medications to alleviate heartburn, but a recent Cedars-Sinai nationwide study found that most patients still have symptoms even despite using these medications. So what is the Korean culture known for thousands of years that modern medication manufacturers still have not figured out. Koreans have been eating a specific food since 37 BC with their meals that gets rid of heartburn, and you've probably heard of it before. It's called kimchi. Kimchi is simple to make, just from like cabbage, salt, chili peppers, garlic, and vinegar for two days to a week in a jar, and voila, 
you have a natural way to stop heartburn in its tracks. Millions of people know this, but do you know why kimchi works so well for alleviating heartburn and acid reflux symptoms? It all comes down to a little-known probiotic bacteria that's produced when you make kimchi called Lactobacillus plantarum. You see, Lactobacillus plantarum has been widely studied in medical research showing that it can easily survive acidic environments in the human gut, where it then gets to work getting rid of all the bad bacteria that causes so many problems. So the benefits of using Lactobacillus plantarum are clear, especially if you suffer from heartburn and acid reflux. But what if you don't want to eat kimchi on a daily basis? Not everyone enjoys the taste or the smell. When I learned about Lactobacillus plantarum back in 2015, I was blown away. This realization made me understand even more about how important it truly is to take care of your gut with beneficial probiotic bacteria on a daily basis. I set to work formulating Florso 50, our extra strength probiotic for Lundu, and by adding the proper amount of Lactobacillus plantarum to the formula, along with seven other incredible probiotic strains, the results of my customers in the past six years have been nothing short of amazing. Men and women from all over the world are completely overhauling their gut health by giving their guts the healthy, good probiotic bacteria that they need, and it's completely life-changing for some people. Just click through to the next page to read these incredible reviews. Now, the cool thing about Floresol 50 is this. By taking just one capsule per day with a meal, you can get a whopping 50 billion CFUs of the most potent and effective probiotic strains known to man. No need to drink or eat smelly fermented foods every day. Just one capsule a day is all you need. If you have gut issues that you need help with, like heartburn, bloating, or just plain bad digestion, then give Floresol 50 a try for yourself for the next 30 days. It'll help you feel better, guaranteed. I believe so strongly that Floresol 50 will work for you, but I offer a no-questions-asked 60-day money-back guarantee on every single bottle. If you're ready to get rid of those irritating gut problems for good, then click through to the next page and learn more about Floresol 50 and give it a try for yourself. I'll see you over there.
and finally generate your own power instead of relying on the grid to keep your lights on, all while getting paid $2,500 to do so. Then click the button below this video and take a 60-second survey to see if you qualify before something gets in your way, and the next thing you know, your electricity bill got even higher, and you just can't seem to find this video again because the program has already ended. Seriously, don't let that happen and click the button below this video to qualify for the program while it's still available. Here in Navy SEALs, three rules for surviving a real-world assault. Rule number one, always fight dirty. If you're assaulted by a criminal, you stand no chance of surviving if you're acting like it's a martial arts tournament. In the real world, the devastating moves that are illegal in martial arts are your best chance to survive. My martial arts mentor proved this point to me by throwing dirt in my face when I was least expecting it. And that's why I surprised my friend here. So you can see how unexpected dirty moves like this can end the fights before it begins. That's exactly why I don't train in martial arts. If you train in martial arts, you're preparing yourself for a sporting competition, not real-world self-defense. If you want to defend yourself in the real world, you need to focus on training the moves that are illegal in martial arts competitions. Throwing dirt, sand, or any other object in your opponent's eyes to blind them is a great way to start. But there are many other devastating, dirty, ruthless moves that you can use in a street fight to neutralize a bigger and stronger opponent. That's why the Navy SEALs don't train in martial arts. Instead, they focus on training with a dirty fighting move called the rat technique. Self-defense experts agree that the rat technique is the ultimate dirty street fighting move. It could never be used in a martial arts tournament because it could cause permanent crippling damage to your opponent. But hundreds of guys like us have used the rat to defend themselves against younger thugs who try to attack or rob them. You can learn the rat technique for free by clicking claim books below. Let's talk about the second rule of fighting criminals. Never let your opponent stand up after you knock him down. I've seen this happen in countless street fighting videos, and I've even seen it happen in the real world a few times. It usually goes like this. First, a criminal attacks someone. They fight back and successfully hit the criminal with something that knocks him to the ground. Then they back off and walk away like they were in a boxing match. The problem is, it's not a boxing match. In the real world, the criminal will get up off the ground and attack you again. That's why one of the world's top self-defense experts, Paul Gunak, teaches that you should never walk away from your opponent until he's completely neutralized. That means you keep striking him until he's completely stopped. The final rule of fighting criminals is to learn the rat technique. And to make it your trained go-to response if someone attacks you. That's because in the real world, criminals don't give you a warning. They take you by surprise. You need to have a go-to move already planned to defend yourself. If you have no plan and you're just winging it, you won't be able to fight back effectively. And when your adrenaline is pumping from a real-world assault, you won't be able to perform complex martial arts moves. That's why your response must be simple, fast, and brutal. And that's exactly why I recommend you learn the rat technique. Click Claim Book to learn it for free. When Paul Bunak was training the Navy SEALs in hand-to-hand -hand combat, he saw immediately that they faced a few important challenges. First, they had a very limited time for hand-to-hand -hand combative training. They had to focus most of their training on weapons. And second, anything they learned would have to be performed under extreme duress on the battlefield. And that's why Paul developed the rat technique. The rat technique is a simple but devastating three-part move. When you perform all three parts of the rat correctly, it's virtually impossible to defend. Navy SEALs have used the rat multiple times. But it's not just Special Forces soldiers in prime condition that have used the rat. We've got numerous emails from older guys who use the rat to defeat younger, stronger attackers. One man even used the rat to stop two men trying to attack his wife. And there have been women who have used the rat technique to defeat male attackers. That's why Paul's offering to teach you the rat technique for free in his book, Rat Fight. People have paid $29.95 for the book on Amazon. But through the link in this video, you can get it for free. Just cover the shipping. Listen, if you're watching this, you're smart enough to know we're living in dangerous times. Violent crime, including murder, is through the roof. And because our politicians love criminals and hate the police, crime is only going to get worse and worse every year. 
And while I encourage you to own and carry a firearm, the reality is that you can't have a weapon with you at all times. And even if you do have a weapon with you when you're attacked, it's more likely than not you won't be able to access it. That's why you must learn how to defend yourself in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And that's why we're taking money out of our pockets to give a copy of Rat Fight to you. Listen, you don't need to train for years in martial arts to defend yourself. You don't need to sweat it out in the gym for hours each week. You just need to pick up a copy of Paul's book like thousands of American patriots have. Just read the chapter on the Rat Technique. Check out the three parts of the move, and you'll immediately be prepared to defend yourself against an assault. Just one hour spent learning the Rat Technique will give you more self-defense capability than a decade spent training traditional martial arts. And as soon as you learn the Rat, you'll instantly have the confidence that comes with knowing you can always defend your family. How would you respond if a criminal attacks your family? And if you don't know right now, that's a problem. But once you have Rat Fight, you'll have a simple, fast, and brutally effective response ready for any criminal. Click Claim Book now to get your free copy of Rat Fight. Space jump. Yeah, they call it space jump. They don't know what it is. It's been there. The STS-88 mission did a flyby and caught a great HD image of this thing. It's about estimated 15 tons. It's in our orbit. Oh, yeah. It's okay. in our orbit. So it's not It's not far out. It's not outer space. It's... No, no. It's at Lagrange 4, Lagrange point four, I believe. Okay. And it's orbiting out there, and uh, it's still there. They won't mess with it because it makes no sense to mess with it. You don't know what type of self-defense system or mechanism this thing may have. But the reason why I think it's important, based on what you were telling me about the gentleman, is because I believe that this thing is watching us. That's what the whole documentary is about. I have 20 incredible researchers in the documentary, including quantum physicists in the documentary, with me and astrophysicists. I think it's watching us, and I believe that it's using quantum entanglement to transmit everything in real time, what's going on on Earth, back to home base at Vortis. And that this could be the gravity civilization that we're, you're talking about that is watching and making sure we don't get too crazy because they don't want us to be a threat. They talked about us becoming a threat in the Sumerian tablets, in the myth of Adapa. They talked about it. They talked about it in the Archives epic. They talked about it in the epic of Gilgamesh. All these tablets, they talk about us potentially rising up and even superseding them uh, and, and, and making sure that we never find out that we don't need them. Mm. This is an ancient tablets, and now finding finding out that he is the uh, the, the constellation of Boethus is attributed to Enlil, and this thing gives off the signal to Boethus. And even in the NSA document, which is read in my documentary, it all comes together like, wow, what is going on here? So I think your guy's theory, that, you know, about grabby civilization, mm -hmm. I believe it. I believe it 100%. Yeah, it's fast. It's a fascinating concept, concept, and it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Another weird thing is, is which I find fascinating, is is the um, the transmedium aspect of these UFOs, like mm -hmm. being in the water and yeah. going in and under the water. And that makes a lot of sense because the oceans are one of the things that we have explored very little of. Yes, absolutely. You look at Christopher Columbus uh, in his actual captain's log. He documents. Now think about this. You're talking about the 1400s, right? There's no there's no light pollution. Something comes up out of the ocean, a bright light, a gigantic bright light comes up out of the ocean and goes off into space. It's documented in his, in, in his, um, you know, in his captain's log. Mm. You only write down things in a captain's log that are important. Right, right. And that's in there. So something came, yes, that's an anomaly. What is coming up with, there's no light bulbs back then. So what is it that came out of the ocean by the ship that can light up the sky? Yeah. That's pretty fucking crazy. Man. Yeah. Um, what I've heard you mention before, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this, but I've heard you talk about um, in the tablets there's a different depiction of Adam and Eve. 
how they were created and how that relates to the Anunnaki specifically. Right. Can you explain specifically how that sure. how that was described in the tablets? So in the tablets, they don't actually make a human being from like dirt and dust like it says in the Bible. Like they didn't do it more dirt and just make a human being like magic. What they did was there was an existing hominid already on this planet. So the Ujiji was getting ready to go to war. There was going to be a coup against the kings of Earth. So they came from Mars to Earth. They, the gods, the, they fell from heaven. But really, was the angels. They, they were a lower class than the level of Enkian and Lil. They didn't call them gods. They were like angels. They fell from heaven to Earth. They came from Mars down to Earth to go to war. And the Atahasis, they encircled the camp in Africa of Enlil and Enki and Anu, who was their father. And they didn't go to battle because the working conditions are harsh. They've been working for 250,000 years on their own. They call the years in shards, so they, it was a lower number, but each one shard is 3,600 years. So what you added up is 250,000 years. No women was one of the biggest complaints. Uh, and it, it, the biggest complaint was no women. And they felt like they were becoming slaves, even though they were volunteers to this breakaway civilization. And so... Uh, the war almost happened, but then Enki, who's Enlil's brother, says, I have an idea. There's an existing being here. They're talking about our cousin. Not Homo sapien. Something else was here already. Our cousins. We can add our essence to it, to it and get it to do our labor, to do your labor. And it was, an agreement was made. This is in the Enumi Elish and a totally separate tablet called the Atahasis. After two separate tablets saying the same exact thing. Which is interesting because it correlates the story, cooperates the story, and so this was done. And so what they did was, they first started with taking genetic material and then making these clones. But the problem with the clones was they couldn't reproduce on their own. You know, if you take a horse and a donkey, and you get a mule, and a mule can't mate with anything. See what I'm saying? So they had added their essence to us. We were then a mule. We weren't able to mate. They had to keep trying to recreate more and more of us the hard way. Eventually, and they were doing this in a place called, um, it was in South Africa, called Adam's Calendar in Africa, which they discovered recently where the first 200,000-year-old gold mines were. They were putting us to work right away mining gold. But anyway, so uh, from there, they said, okay, these clones are here, but it's not working out properly. And that's when Hersag, a.k.a. Isis, they said, I'm going to take one to terms. She took an egg out of a hominid, cleaned out some of the genetic material, added their essence to it, in other words, genetically modified the egg in some way. This is what we call in modern scientific terms, making a zygote. And then in vitro fertilization, in her own womb, 10 months later, gave birth to Adamu, which means first man. And the famous uh, cylinder scroll is in the British Museum of her holding up the baby saying, my hand created it, the Adamu. And that was Adam. And, uh, and then after that, there was this tablet that came out called the Myth of Adapo, which is also Adamu in a different way. But it talks about the fact that we are created in a way where Enki, for whatever reason, they pissed his brother off. He added something a little extra to us that he wasn't supposed to do. He gave us the capability of having, uh, in the future, of superseding the Anunnaki themselves. And it made the Anunnaki relatives of his jealous of us and angry with us because he had created something that even long term could be better than them extra strands of DNA and all this other stuff that he incorporated into our genome that would allow us eventually one day to rise even above. And nobody knew why he did it, but he, he, got, he got him into a battle against his own brother. This is all in ancient tablets. Wow. You know, one of the craziest things to me is that if these, if these, if these beings were 
so much more advanced than we are now. Why would they have emotions like jealousy and anger and all these primal sort of emotions? I mean, these sort of things with with our species are like the worst thing. Right. They're the reason we go to war and kill each other and people starve. Yeah, and that's a great question. So when you read the beginning of how they started out, it appears that there was a galactic war millions of years ago in the Pleiadian star system. Planets were being destroyed. They had weapons called the Brahmanda weapon, which would destroy any man on three worlds. They had these tablets of destiny, which whoever had control can destroy people's planets and moons. Debris. Imagine in this solar system, debris going everywhere and hitting planets, destroying civilizations. We would flee if we could. People started fleeing these star systems around the Pleiades millions of years ago, creating breakaway civilizations in other parts of the galaxy, different different sector altogether. The Anunnaki people, these Atlantean people, they went and started off in another place. They had risen to a high level there. They had uh, done away with the weapons of, this is interesting, weapons of mass destruction. They had a weapon called a WMD. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes. And they had done away with them. They were forsaken. But when a small group of these people broke away and came to kickstart a civilization here on Earth, they stole some of the WMDs and brought them with them. This is in ancient tablets. They put them in a, hid them in a mountain and didn't and swore never to use them. But when they got here and they started doing what they were doing and they started breaking all their own rules, they began to realize there's nobody here to guard us. There's nobody here to stop us from doing this. And they said the creator of all is going to, uh, is going to get us for this. They even believed somebody was higher than them. They realized that they were acting like the Wild Wild West here. And they started off very strict, and then they gradually, with nobody overseeing them, really, they started, like, going back primal. In other words, the, the thoughts of war and this and the greed and all that crept back in. And eventually, somebody went and got the weapons, and they started fighting each other with the weapons. So it was this gradual process over 100,000 years or so between them coming in with a very strict set of rules and of engagement, of engagement and everything else and, uh, and ideology into it just collapsing over time, realizing... Who's going to stop us? Who's going to tell me I can't do this? Nobody's going to come here and stop me from doing it. There's no law here. And then they just went rush out. They went crazy. Backwards. Yes, they went backwards. They backslid hard. But it took a couple hundred thousand years before they fully backslid. Wow. It's like raising a kid and then all of a sudden, you, you know, you, you know, you're a teenager. Now your mom says, okay, you can go out tonight. And you go out and you go, wow, I'm out. You know, what? Well, no, my mom ain't here. I could do this. Nobody's going to tell me to stop doing You know, so it's kind of like a teenager that gets let, let, left out there and with no guidance. And that's what happens. When you create all the content you create, the documentaries, the videos, and do, and, and do all and produce all these movies and stuff, do you have run into trouble when you try to recruit like mainstream scientists or cosmeto- cosmetologists? I've, had, I've gotten to, I try to recruit James Webb to do the Black Man Satellite. And uh, initially he said yes, and then he looked a little bit deeper into what I was talking about. He he ran away quick. And then I had another another astrophysicist from the university at uh, Nova in uh, in uh, Davie, Florida. And initially he was in, and then he dug a little deeper, and he said, "Oh no, 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 yeah." So I've had situations like that. Fortunately, I've gotten on the Travel Channel, the History Channel, Discovery Channel, the Science Channel. Gaia TV, now I'm on my own TV network, and so I've got so much popularity talking about these types of topics, these same topics, and so now, and a lot of it have been done in a very professional way, you know, now I'm coming up, I'm going to be on Ancient Aliens uh, TV series, which is like the longest running series on History Channel right now, 
And so it's added a little bit more credibility. The fact that more people are opening up and talking about it and it's on mainstream TV, it's, it's, it's giving people a reason to, to ask questions and talk about it versus it being some hidden conspiracy thing. And so it's become a little bit easier. When I did the Black Knight, I got probably about five or six no's, maybe seven, actually seven no's. And then, but the rest of the other people, they were eager to come on board and share the knowledge and, uh, you know, participate in the, in the documentary and many others that I'm working on also. Yeah, they get a lot of backlash from yeah. people in the other people in their universities and their colleagues when, right. they, when they even entertain discussions like this. Yes, yeah. They think they're going to lose their funding, their grant money. Yeah. It's all about the money. It never, it's never about the truth or what really happened. It's all about, well, if we do this, they may pull the funding. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's all about how, how can I pay my bills? You know? Yeah, I remember uh, even... Avi Loeb, uh, the guy who discovered the Amuamua, yes. talks about this a lot. He had a lot of people who were very angry with him. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is also just jealousy because yeah. there's so many people that dedicate their lives to studying these things and they're in the universities. And then one guy decides to yeah. st- step outside the line a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then they get all this attention. The yeah. guy's got a book, a really a super popular book. He's yeah. on all over the internet. Yeah, he's gonna be on my network soon. Have you ever talked to him? Not yet. No, I have my my what producer's been talking. What do you think about that Amuamua object that he found? I think the Amuamua is an amazing uh, artifact anomaly. I don't think it's a rock or a stone or any type of comet or asteroid. I think it's an actual remnant of an ancient galactic war that existed. It to me it ties into the ancient war theory that existed. There was another war that happened here that extended from Earth to the Moon and then even to Mars. That Amua Amua, to me, is a relic of an ancient war. It even had, to me, it might be so operational. It kind of used the sun as a gravitational assist and shot itself out deeper into deep galactic space, into galactic space. And the shape of it, to me, and everything else, it just, to me, it spells artificially made, Mm -hmm. artificially constructed. I remember Comet 67P. I took images of that comet. Uh, Which one was that? That was the one we sent uh, a mission to, to land on it, and we landed on it about five or six years ago. Find this one. Yeah. 67P, Comet 67P. Yeah. And what's interesting is there were some openings on the comet, or there are some openings on the comet, and some of the images, now the images were coming in real time every single day from the satellite that was that was orbiting it, and actually a lander went to the, to the surface. That's it there. And what's interesting is on some days, the openings looked like something was in them. Not anything we can recognize, but we don't know how, how an opening can close and how an opening can be open again, how it can be blocked by something and how it can be open again. So just I think there's a lot of stuff out there we just can't really explain. There's a lot more going on that we know, and there's a reason why they went to this comet and rendezvous with this, because this thing, really, to me, it had something miraculous going on. They wanted to take a closer look. I think that's why they spent the money and the resources to go to this comet. Was this comet part of the Torrid Meteor Stream, or...? No, it wasn't. It's just another one of these objects that uh, seems to just be floating around on its own, kind of a rogue comet, and we rendezvous with it, and uh, it's it's got weird things going on, weird gravitational fields that shouldn't exist. Uh, they landed something called the Filet Lander on it, and they, they misjudged the gravity because based on their calculations, it has a certain gravity, and it didn't have it. Look at that. Austin, blow up that picture where it says the comet ne- uh, in re- relationship to Los Angeles. Click no. Yeah, right there. Right, right there. Right there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Holy shit. That's a big one. That's a big one. That thing is enormous. Yeah. I think that, that, there's one below it of it. Next to it. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. If that hit Earth, we'd be done. We'd be finished. 
Oh my God. There's another comet out there called Apophis. Apophis is the size of Texas. And it came by uh, about 10 years ago. And then it came by one more time and it hit a gravitational keyhole on the last swing by right between Earth and the moon. Nobody, they didn't say anything about it until it left. It came closer than the moon? Yeah. And then it hit a gravitational keyhole. Now, what's interesting about it... What, is, other, it, what is a gravitational keyhole? Well, when you own a orbital mechanics, if you hit a gravitational keyhole, that means on the next approach, that same object, wherever it is in space, on your next approach to that object, you potentially can hit it. Okay. So you're looking at uh, 2036 or something like that, which could potentially have a collision with Apophis, which is why Obama, when he was in office, he knew about this. They, they, they briefed him on this. Apophis? Apophis. Okay. He said a mission to start landing on asteroids and learning how to shift their orbits. Because something like that, you can't blow it up. Mm-hmm. If you blow it up, it'll destroy the planet even faster because it'll be giant chunks hitting the planet all over the place versus just one impact. If you have to learn how to shift the orbit by landing something on it and, and turning on some type of a rocket propellant to shift it out of its orbit mm-hmm. to take it into a different Lagrange point so it doesn't hit the planet. And so that's what they, they just actually successfully did that. I think it was actually a few months ago. They really? We rendezvous. The, the mission was started when Obama was in office. They just landed. No <laughs> long way. It took to get to it. It was, a, it was a, a executive order he signed to make this happen, to make sure that we knew how to move comets out of the way from hitting our planet. And we actually just did it. And so they're hoping that uh, they can rendezvous this apophis if it's going to be on an approach that's going to be a collision course so they can maneuver it out of the way. How, how big was the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs? You know? Um, I don't know. When you're doing with that kind of speed and impact. Well, the crazy thing, too, is a lot of them blow up in the sky. Right. Like Tunguska. That thing exploded, I think, five miles in the sky and just yeah. created, like, a shotgun blast. Right, and everything for miles. Yeah. Crazy stuff. So these things are, these, you know, there's just so much stuff out there. There's another object that orbits our Earth with the moon. With the moon. So we actually have two moons. There's another object that's flipping around out there in its own orbit around Earth. It's not as big as the moon, but it's, it's our second moon. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's been there for you know, since forever. And uh, it's on this weird uh, orbit around Earth. It orbits Earth along with our moon orbiting Earth. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people have some very, um, strange theories about the moon. Yeah. What do you think about the moon? Well, I can only go by data points. And, you know, I'm a data point guy. If you go to USGS.gov and download this satellite radar imagery of the moon, anyone can do this. Pull it into your computer. Radar, ground penetrating radar is going to let you see what's 30 meters beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And what you see is what looks like structures beneath the surface of the moon. With the naked eye, no editing, no photoshopping, just looking at it. There's videos on YouTube. You can pull them up all day long. You can find videos about the moon. There's one guy, Mars Anomalies, Chris Maroney. He was actually in my documentary. He's one of the top anomaly hunters in the world. He did a great video with the official images and all the source links on the uh, the substructures that appear to be in the uh, ground-penetrating radar images of the moon. And as you know, the moon rang like a bell when they crashed the lander into it. Right. And so, I, in my opinion, it's hollow. Now, I have something else. In another documentary I was in about the moon, uh, I think it was uh, 2013, there is a, we got the Freedom, of, the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA, on the black box for the Apollo 11. Now, we have the audio and we have the redacted printed document. And in the audio, which we play in the documentary, uh, one of the astronauts is looking down as they're going across the moon looking for a landing site, and he says, look at those convex domes down there. 
And then Neil goes, I bet the people down there never get out. And that's on the black box audio. And it even made it into the redacted doc. They didn't redact that statement. It's still on the redacted official black box written st uh, statement from the Apollo 11. Really? Yeah. I bet the people down there never get out. Pretty interesting. Well, how did you find this? That's now available to the public, a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Oh, really? Now. It's now available to everyone. Anyone can download it now, the Apollo 11 black box audio. And then we also have the um, declassified documents from the Clementine mission, which was a low lunar orbiting satellite that the military sent up to the moon, very close to the surface. When I saw the name Clementine, I knew right away, I said, oh, my God, this thing is not coming back. I bet I found out it never came back. And at the end, I found out it never came back. But it transmitted a lot of data and images that show anomalies on the dark side of the moon, on the back side of the moon. That's what primarily what they were after. Clementine, because, oh, my darling Clementine, you were lost and gone forever. That's an old country song. Mm -hmm. So I knew that song. I knew right away when they named it Clementine. They never planned for it to come back. They claimed it crashed, but I knew that was part of the plan to leave it there. But it transmitted some amazing footage that's available actually online anyone can download in HD resolution unobfuscated of things that don't belong on the back side of the moon so just a lot of crazy stuff that you know just goes on um yeah it, it is you know the craziest thing too is that we can't freaking get back to the moon it's been since about 50 years since we've been to the moon and we can't seem to get i think right now with that i don't know did the artemis mission ever ever happened i know it's it, they postponed it like three or four times already yeah there's so many postponings about it and, and, and uh, yeah i don't know if it's uh now i know if we do have that they left that dish up there in one of the apollo 14 or 15 missions mm -hmm. and every single day they transmit a packet of data from earth to that dish and by laser every single day what are they transmitting to that dish and why are they transmitting to the dish yeah that's an interesting thing that randall told me about too you know he was like if were to do anything he's like we should at least be like if earth got destroyed right tomorrow there would be virtually nothing left in uh, a couple thousand years right. literally building cities new york city would be dust yeah the only things that would be left are the pyramids i think and uh um what is the what are the the what's the structure called mount rushmore Oh yeah, like Mount Rushmore, like like these things will be, will still be there. These big giant stone uh, structures, mm -hmm. but everything else, like like computers, everything else will be dust. dust. And uh, he's like, one of the things that we should be doing is saving or digitizing everything on a hard drive on the moon. So that's what they're doing because they're transmitting data like you wouldn't believe. That's probably what they're doing. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it would be a smart thing to do. Yeah. It would be a smart fail-safe. Right, right. Um, because you have to get back to the data. That's the only way to understand how to rec recreate like a cell phone. We know how to use a cell phone, but I don't know how to make a cell phone. And if I learn how to make one part of it, how do I get the other parts to it that need to be done, like the towers and all the technology for a tower and the satellite communication? You have to have a place, a storehouse of information, almost like a, 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 you know, a, a chamber of knowledge mm -hmm. that one can tap into and open up and all the schematics and all the plans and everything else is right there for you. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and there was a there was an article, I forget how long ago now the article came out, maybe a, maybe about six months ago, but I think it was a Chinese rover spotted like some sort of black box on the surface of the moon yeah. and it was going to take them, they were going to go check it out, but it was the rover was so slow, supposedly it was going to take them months to get there. Well, that yeah, was the second one. The first one, which was years ago, it got stuck in debris. It got tangled in debris. What is debris doing on the moon? And they sent one image back, and it had these things that looked Maybe like... Maybe it meant rocks or something. No, it looked like they sent the image in the image. It oh. looked like bent wires and stuff all over the place, and they couldn't get free of it. And so
So this is your second one. Oh, no way. Yeah. Now, India sent uh, the India University, they have a, a college there. They raised $3 million, not $3 billion like we do, and they created a satellite sent it to Mars. And the first image they sent back was of Mars, blue light scatter in the sky, not red. Uh, you know, what looks like to be water beneath and mountains and everything else, not dark red like they NASA does. They, they call NASA calls those images, by the way, false color. They actually add that red color. Really? Yeah, and you can look it up, and they tell you why they do it, because they said it makes image transmission better. Mm. So it hides a lot of stuff. It's not red. It looks like you're walking around Arizona when you go there. And that image came back from the Indians, uh, Indian Space Agency, and it blew everybody away, because it was like, holy crap, it looks like Earth, but it was Mars. Yeah. So look, these images from the Indian Space Agency, they're online right now? Yeah, they're up there. And so I'm just going to have one here. Austin, Austin can probably Google them. Yeah. Look up the Indian Space Agency Mars image. Now, what's interesting is Bolden, who was the head of NASA at the time, a week later he flies to India and signs a deal with them, <laughs> with the end with the Space Agency, with, with NASA. So it's pretty interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Why would he do that? As if they probably even moving to maybe even cover it up or take mm. over the data or who knows what they do. Yeah. This is an image that I took of Mars from my Celestron 130 uh, home telescope. Wow. That's Mars in the summer. Anyone can get a Celestron SLT 130, go out and... That's uh, incredible. Go out in February, aim it at Mars. You can find Mars on the app. You can get the space app and show you where Mars is at. Tells you where to point it. <clears throat> and you'll, you'll get this image. Okay, so what are we looking at here, Austin? Oh, oh it's a, yeah, some sort of news channel. Oh, okay, I don't know. Carved into a golden surface. These are the first images taken by a satellite by India's maiden Mars mission, released by the country's space agency on Thursday. Scientists tweeted, the view is nice up here, under the Twitter handle at Mars Orbiter, which has amassed more than 108,000 followers since its setup on Tuesday. The satellite, affectionately called MOM by the mission's acronym, will spend six months in elliptical orbit, collecting atmospheric data from as close as 365 kilometers and as far out as 80,000 kilometers from the planet's surface. Have you seen that that that, uh, that, that new Space Force logo they came out with, the triangle? Yeah. You see how they put the Sphinx in there? <laughs> or it was like a pharaoh's head? It's crazy. It's pharaoh's head. Yeah, they got it uh, looking real. Uh, ancient Egyptian. What the? I feel yeah. like, what are you guys, they're trolling us. Now, you want to know something else? When we went to Egypt, uh, the the entrance or the access to the Grand Gallery, the, yeah, the Grand Gallery inside the um, uh, Great Pyramid, that's the chamber leading up to the King's Chamber. That's the, the, like this little alley that leads up to the King's Chamber. Right. NASA owns the rights to the access to that. To the King's Chamber. Yes. Nobody's ever been in the King's Chamber, right? Yeah, I've, I've been there, yeah. No, oh, up, up into the top part? Into the, the King's Chamber is not at the very top. It's inside this area. Oh. So you go up about, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 meters, and then you enter, enter into the shaft. And from there, you're able to climb up a series of channels until you get to the Grand Gallery. Mm. And the Grand Gallery, you have to bend and kind of pull yourself up. Right. It leads you into the king's chamber. You have to duck your head and go underneath this giant slab, this, I don't know, 100-ton slab of granite to get inside the king's chamber, which I've been in there many times. It took all the people in it. We were in there. Two.